Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest, and we are back at it again. Season four is in motion. We're rolling, and we're bringing you our first edition of our weekly roundup. And so this is our chance to bring you all the news from the past week, whether it's business, finances, odd news we sometimes cover in our quick hits, but also some of the biggest stories that you're concerned about. And so we bring it to you here in a nice, neat package where you can sit back and relax and listen to us, give you some commentary on what's happening in the world around you. So with that, we're going to get off and roll in here. And our first story is going to be kind of a sad one. So we're going to start on more of a somber note, I would say, uh, with uh, Cheryl A. Hickman, who is the Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated National President and Chair. Uh, we're sad to announce that she has passed away um, and she sadly passed away on January 20th after a recent illness. And this was confirmed by BET.com. And so Hickman, who is a 1984 graduate of Southern Carolina State University, was elected to her position in November to lead the Deltas, which is one of nine black sororities and fraternities that are popularly known as the Divine Nine. And so her passing comes just days after they celebrated their Founders Day on January 13th in recognition of their establishment on the Howard University campus on January 13th, 1913. So uh, sad to see that, Adrian, just a few days after celebrating their founding, um, they have to, you know, now deal with this, you know, losing their, their president and chair is just, you know, tough time for them, you know, to go through this. Yeah, Devin, it's a very tough time. Um, anytime that you have to mourn the loss of a leader or someone who's had some influence or a touch in your life, it's a bad time for you. So we definitely wanted to kind of start on that. <clears throat> and to take us to something else that's kind of a bad time, um, kind of uh, a different kind of death, uh, a death that we kind of <laughs> see a lot in the Senate because the Senate kind of is known uh, as a graveyard for a lot of bills. But Senate Democrats made an impassioned case on Wednesday for legislation, but they failed to overcome Republican blockade or unite their own members behind a change in filibuster rules to pass it. And the it that we're talking about is a voting rights legislation, which would establish nationwide standards for for ballot access. Among them are a minimum of 15 consecutive days of early voting and a requirement that all voters be able to request to vote by mail. The measure would also establish new automatic voter registration programs and make Election Day a national holiday. Republicans aggressively fought both the Republican measure and the attempt to weaken the filibuster. They accused Democrats of manufacturing a crisis by exaggerating the impact of new state laws in an effort to recognize, excuse me, to realize a longstanding goal of gaining more control over state elections and risking the uniqueness of the Senate to do so. And, you know, listeners, we've talked so much about, you know, the state state laws and state law changes that are really trying to change the way voting is done. So for us to still be kind of talking about this and to have the entire Republican party and even some of the Democrat party, not clearly see what's going on around the country with voting. I mean, it's, it's interesting Devin that we're in this situation still um, where we can't have easy common sense stuff like election day being a national holiday, uh, making sure that people can vote easily by mail, especially when we're in a pandemic where uh, Omicron is, you know, getting worse and we're going to get ready to do midterm elections and we don't want to do vote by mail. Um, it's 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 a it's just it's just craziness to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand that, too, and I feel the same way. You know, there's some just frustration with the fact that they couldn't get over the hump. It was going to be a tough hill to climb no matter what they did because you had Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin standing in the way. They were never really on board with getting rid of the filibuster. So even though Democrats put all of their, you know, momentum and attention and, and you know, all their muster behind it, it just was they were never on board with getting rid of the getting rid of the filibuster, even for Build Back Better or any other legislation. So, you know, it was going to be a tough ask for them to carve out the filibuster for voting rights le- legislation. But like you say, 
you would think something like this, there would be some common ground. But I think, you know, this is just a fundamental difference between the parties where one, the Republican Party is much more let the states handle their elections, let the states run their elections. And the Democrats are more so let's try to even out the standards when we're talking about voting. And then we don't have this where in one state you have 15 days of early voting and another state you only have a week. And then in this state you can't vote by mail. You know, it's, it's just it's a hodgepodge. It's the way our system has been constructed. But sometimes it can be frustrating. And so we saw that during the pandemic uh, where a lot of drop boxes were put out um, around different areas. And that was a big thing to help people get involved and get, you know, and allow it, make it easier to vote. But what you saw after the 2020 election was a lot of states passed bills far, you know, greatly reducing the number of drop boxes, making it harder for people to vote. The goal with this is to make it easier for people to vote. We want as many folks at the ballot box as possible. And what we saw was that when we put out these ballot boxes and these drop boxes and made it easier for people to vote, they actually participated. We want to continue that because we want to get that voter participation rate up. But, you know, the Republican Party is just not on board, even though I think they probably would benefit from this, too. They benefit from a high turnout elections. 2020 showed that. So um, it's frustrating, but it's not totally surprising that they couldn't get, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to carve out the filibuster for voting rights legislation. So um, it's a sad, it sucks. The Senate is where good legislation goes to die. And this is just going to be another one tossed on the pot. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, it's a, it's a bad situation, especially when you've got Democrats who are, you know, in on it too. And we've talked about Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema a lot. And I think we're going to continue to talk about them. They probably like their uh, celebrity status that they get for having um, the, the rebel position in the party. Something like that, a rebel position. But <laughs> we'll move on from those two. You'll probably hear us mention those names again, I'm sure, at some point during the season. But we're going to go to another story here, a little bit of COVID news for you. So um, if you don't know, you can now order free, co- uh, free home COVID-19 tests from the federal government. Um, the website of formally debuted on Wednesday, but it actually kind of quietly launched on Tuesday. Uh, the program is part of the Biden's administration uh, effort to increase testing amid this nationwide surge of the Omicron variant. And so the White House is ordering one billion tests for distribution. And so if you want to order your test, you can just go to covidtests.gov and you can sign up there. You just need to enter your name, email and residential address. You cannot use a business address to order COVID-19 tests. So go ahead, order your, your test. I think you get four maybe. Um, that's how they're doing it. So go get your free test and help, you know, let your friends know, let your family know, order you a free test. Yes. Go get your tests. Go get your free shots. I mean, it's everything's pretty much free. So uh, there's no reason to, like, you know, beat around the bush. Let's get this thing done. Now, another thing to, you know, talk about beating around the bush, you know, people in Florida, they're really not beating around the bush on trying to um, just change the way we look at race and race issues. Um, they have this law, Individual Freedom Act, SB 148. Uh, it reads in part that an individual by virtue of his or her race or sex does not bear responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race or sex. An individual should not be made to feel guilty, discomfort, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of his or her race. The bill was sponsored by Republican State Senator Manny Diaz Jr. or Diaz Jr. and has support of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. So, listeners, when you kind of hear this, you know, it's kind of a response to you know CRT and different things like that, where you know a lot of white Americans are thinking that we're trying to, I guess, have some sort of guilt. Uh, placed on them or make them feel guilty for things that their forefathers have done. And it's just what this um, state senator is trying to do. 
According to CBS News, the former educator said the bill is not about ignoring America's dark history, but instead protecting people from being blamed for the sins of their forefathers. If the bill passes, it would apply to educational institutions and private businesses. And I mean, I don't feel that 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 anybody that's talking about critical race theory or anyone that's really just trying to talk about history in general is trying to make white Americans feel bad. Um, I don't think that anyone is trying to say that white Americans have to repay or fess up for, you know, things that happened in the past. It's, I mean, we're, we're, we're saying that you should own up to the fact that these things happen and that because of these things, they have ramifications that are playing out today. I do think that, you know, there is a responsibility of that. But I don't think that we're asking anybody to take full responsibility to say, you know, I'm going to bear the blunt for um, slavery. I mean, we're not asking for a Christ or a Messiah or anything like that to bear our, you know, bear those sins or whatever. We're just saying that, you know, let's teach it. You know, let's just make sure that when we talk about Christopher Columbus or our founding fathers, we can talk about, you know, how they, you know, committed rape or slavery and different things like that. We don't have to discredit them for being uh, patriotic heroes, but we can also tell people that they were humans too. Exactly. I think, you know, I, I get on one hand wanting to be cautious about the things you're telling young kids but like you say, we're trying. We're not here to blame white people and put you know and say you're a bad person because back in the 1950s and 40s, you know, your forefathers and your great 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 parents were doing all these horrific things to black people. Uh, I I don't think that's not the goal of this. I think the goal with with trying to teach a more holistic version of American history is to make sure that they understand the mistakes that were made and so we don't repeat them. You know, even in the article, some of the, the Democratic lawmakers from Florida were saying, like, you know, for Mr. Diaz Jr., who who wrote this bill, like, are you trying to be an enabler here? Or are you trying to, re you know, are you trying to not be in the way of repeating history? You know, because we got, we just talked about voting rights and what's, how we're sliding backwards on that. And so you see... Places where America is is progressing, but then you also see places where we're sliding backwards. And if we don't properly educate the populace about the real history of this country and how we got to this point, then we'll be forever repeating the same mistakes. You know, it's it's not because black people always want to talk about race. It's because we have been frustrated that the story of race has been told from through one lens. And so only now are we able to control or at least have some influence on that lens with which the history of the country is taught. So now we're taking, you know, we're, we're showing our frustrations a little bit as far as people standing in the way and now saying, well, this makes me uncomfortable. Or we, you know, you can't take, you know, you can't teach this book. You can't teach with that book. Like that's what's happening in Texas. We're trying to go through and ban certain books, what they are saying about race. And it's just... You know, you, you can't be like that if you want to teach a holistic version of American history. And, you know, I feel like whenever we talk about this and like particularly as a response, I feel like to critical race theory and things like that. Um, it makes me think really about like voting rights legislation and how lawmakers can't see how a lot of the laws we have on the books are indirectly racist and how. You know, what we're saying is that you may not realize it, but when you have these sorts of laws um, that don't make it easier to vote, make voting more accessible, you're affecting black and brown communities more so than you're affecting white communities. And it's not saying that the laws that you're writing are inherently racist. It's just saying they have racist indirect effects because, you know, you know, some black and brown communities don't have, you know, uh, driver's license. I mean, I know some, you know, people who don't drive, so they don't really worry about having a driver's license that much. I mean, they don't, I mean, there's a lot of older generation members who don't worry about flying and traveling and all that kind of stuff. So they don't really carry it. Um, and there's just a lot of other reasons why people don't do that. So, I mean, this is an important topic and we're going to be talking about it all year. I'm sure. There's already been a governor's race that was won by it, so I'm sure it's going to be a big yes. thing. 
Glenn Youngkin can can check the box on that. CRT helped him get in, but we'll move on from that. Like Adrian said, we'll probably be talking more about uh, what's being taught in our schools. So a couple stories before we go to break. Number one, there is a push in Congress. There is a push in Congress to ban members of Congress from trading individual stocks. And so uh, there's a bipartisan push again this time to ban lawmakers from trading Stocks and proponents say it's an important step to make uh, to remove all doubt of charges of conflicts of interest that could stem from members using information from classified briefings or committee meetings to make money in the market. Um, The current law, which is the Stock Act, requires, you know, uh, Congress people to report uh, stock transactions within like a certain period of time. I think it may be 45 days, but that a lot of people say is is not really followed. It has a mixed record. Um, Kedrick Payne, who is the general counsel for the uh, Campaign Legal Center, says that, number one, that polls overwhelmingly support changing the law to where lawmakers can't buy and sell stock. And he also says, says there have been more than 50 instances in the last year of members not disclosing their stock trades in the time period required. So, the current law isn't really, I wouldn't say it's not really being followed, but there are issues with it. So um, I, I would be f- fully supported, Adrian. A lot of people talked about it last year. You know, Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, does trade stocks and benefited, you know, selling stocks before the pandemic shutdown. So even if it's not being hugely abused, I still think it's a good move. Absolutely. Um People in Congress are privy to a lot of information, and they do not need to have any appearance of conflicts of interest. Um, you know, when you're in a position like that, even I mean, that's how it is in the courtrooms and stuff. Even the appearance can look wrong. So let's let's take that to Congress. Exactly, and and so our last story here, uh, we'll wrap up with a good feeling story here. We'll leave you with some good news is that the United States Mint has announced on Monday that it has begun shipping quarters that are going to feature the image of poet Maya Angelou. And these are the first coins in its American Women's Quarters program. So I didn't even know that existed. So the author Maya Angelou, who died in 2014 at the age of 86, was honored with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2010 by then-President Barack Obama. And so the quarter design depicts Angelou with outstretched arms and behind her are bird in flight and a rising sun, which are images inspired by her poetry. So um, you could eventually one day here soon have a Maya Angelou quarter. So make sure you hang on to that. That's history literally in your hands. So we're going to take another, we're going to take our first quick break. And when we come back, we're going to give you some more news. We're going to go around the globe a little bit. We're going to go to Russia and talk a little bit about what's happening with Ukraine. And then we'll come back stateside and talk about uh, some more news regarding education. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. As Devin was talking about, we're going to go global and talk a little bit about Russia. Top U.S. and Russian diplomats agreed Friday to keep talking in the standoff over Ukraine, even though their meeting produced no movement in the crisis that has seen Moscow mass tens of thousands of troops at the border and the West ramp up supplies and weapons to Kiev. Moscow wants NATO to promise the Ukraine will never be added as a member, that no alliance weapons will be deployed near Russian borders, and that it will pull back its forces from Central and Eastern Europe. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the U.S. and its allies remain resolute in rejecting Russia's most important demands. Secretary Blinken also said that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov repeated Russians' insistence that it has no plans to invade Ukraine, but the U.S. and its allies were not convinced. So hopefully we can have some de-escalation over there. You know, Putin isn't uh, the person of, you know, that, that's 
uh, favorable to anyone. You know, I think he's always got his agenda and what he wants to do and have more power. So uh, we just wanted to kind of keep you in the loop of what's going on because we know that that's been a big global story that's been on everybody's radar. But hopefully we can get some, like I said, some de-escalation over there, Devin, now that we've got a better administration in charge. Yeah, I'm definitely hoping so. I think the Biden, it's nice to see the Biden administration trying to use the diplomacy avenue first before we try to get into a military conflict. And I I don't, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but I don't think anything is going to happen. You know, no invasion or anything like that. But we, you know, we shall see. We'll move to our next story here. We're going to come back stateside. So uh, there's a historic black church that has received a massive donation um, on Martin Luther King Day. So a new effort to preserve historically black churches received a $20 million donation that will go to help congregations such as one in Mayfield, Kentucky, that was slammed during the tornado last month that killed more than 20 people. So the enormous contribution is coming from Lily Lilly Endowment, Inc., which supports religious, educational, and charitable causes that donated the funds to the African-American Culture Heritage Action Fund as seed money for the Preserving Black Churches projects. A lot of, a lot of acronyms in there. <laughs> but um, that's a major donation, Adrian, and, and it's nice to see that there there is an effort there to preserve um, historically black churches because we know we we know how important they are to the community. So nice to see that effort is getting a big lift. Absolutely. It's a lot of importance to the community and a lot of history because churches were, especially in the black community, were very influential in the, you know, the, the bringing up of a lot of community members and the kind of keeping things together. So uh, really, really nice thing there. To take uh, us to a different story here, this is one about black and Latino students and how um, they're getting a lot of inexperienced, uncertified teachers from this study. So apparently uh, black and Latino students are disproportionately learning in classrooms headed by inexperienced and uncertified teachers contributing to their academic achievement gap that has stubbornly persisted for decades. And this is according to a study from the Education Trust's the novice teachers tend to lack the skills to motivate underachieving students, encourage them to complete homework assignments, and to reduce absenteeism, the Education Trust said. There's a steep learning curve in the first few years of educators' careers. And that's really, really true. I definitely saw that while I was working because a lot of first-year teachers talked about some of the mental fatigue and mental stress because school, unfortunately, doesn't really prepare you for what the real world is, and that's throughout a multitude of careers. According to the study, one uh, one on Latino students and the other on black students, schools that serve predominantly black students on average hire 15% of inexperienced teachers compared to 10% of novice educators at schools with the smallest black student enrollment. And the gap is even wider. About 25% of states where predominantly black schools have at least twice as many inexperienced teachers. You know, Devin, I think, you know, whenever I go, whenever I look back at Mississippi and and my time with working with a lot of the teachers and I kind of compare that to California, that was definitely one or rather this is one of the areas that I saw as a huge uh, difference. And, you know, one of the things you see in Mississippi, definitely a huge black area Um, in some of the um rural areas in California where it was more Latino and Hispanic, you would see that too, where there just wasn't a lot of funds and there wasn't a lot of resources there. So they pretty much took whoever that they could. And there weren't, you know, there weren't a lot of programs where educators were encouraged to go get their master's or go get, you know, a specialist degree or something like that. Um, so I, I, I know I've seen, you know, this, like I said, more so in the South and in, you know, school systems where they didn't have as much funding, but, um, that, you know, the article talks about how that plays into it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something you have to consider when you're talking about the issues that exist within the education system. You know, it's not just, you know, funding doesn't just affect the, the the resources that the students get, whether that's computers and updated textbooks and, you know, buildings that don't have, that don't have you know, holes in them and leaky faucets. And, you know, those things is what you really think about what underfunded 
schools and school districts. But the other part of that is that when you don't have resources and you're cash strapped, you can't offer good paying salaries to the really, really good teachers. You get sort of the bottom of the barrel, the ones who are fresh out of school, who are willing to take any position. No disrespect to them. They're doing an amazing job. But like, as you say, it is there is a learning curve that happens when they're in those first few years of teaching. And so if you have a school that's, I don't know, 25%, you know, new teachers, then the kids are going to suffer. And it's going to there's going to be an achievement gap until those teachers get some time under their belt. So it's it's a problem. And that's why, you know, we need to pay teachers more. You need to be able to attract talent and recruit talent and people don't go towards the teaching and education because the pay is not there and and the work outweighs that you have a lot more responsibility you're a part-time therapist you're a teacher you're a mentor you know it's it's a lot of things that goes into it and so um it's, it's just a compounding problem there are a litany of things wrong with it and um it just sucks that the students are the ones who lose at the end of the day no, you're right, Devin. I mean, there's so many different points of that where, you know, you know, and listeners, we're going to have an episode, you know, later next week, actually, talking a little bit more about education and how virtual learning has really been affecting black and Latino students uh, disproportionately. So uh, be on the lookout for that. That's why we wanted to kind of highlight this story to kind of get you ready for that. Exactly. Make sure you tune in for that. So our next story here, we're going to be talking about Jay-Z. Jay-Z and Team Rock, which is uh, his social justice initiative. They are currently pressing the Department of Justice for an investigation of the Kansas City Police Department to review allegations of wrongdoing and discrimination. And so in an open letter sent on Tuesday, Team Rock, along with the nonprofit organization Midwest Innocence Project, said there is enough evidence of systemic police misconduct within the department to warrant a probe. The reported incidents include a case of a former detective who was accused of ex- exploiting black women for sex and framing people for crimes they did not commit. So uh, we'll, of course, keep you updated on that story. And if the D- uh, Department of Justice actually opens a probe, we will, of course, bring that to you here on our weekly roundup. So. Make sure you look out for an update on that story. Absolutely. Another interesting story that I found, uh, this was, you know, because it's MLK week. This is probably the only reason why she's relevant right now. But uh, Avita King, Dr. King's niece, who is a Trump supporter and defended uh, defender rather of the voter, suppre- voter suppression laws in Georgia, appeared on Fox News and MLK Day and discussed black fathers. Rachel Campus Duffy was one of the conservative talk show hosts on the show, was talking about how in MLK's days, only about 24 percent of black children were born out of wedlock versus about 70 percent today. She went on to quote NFL player Jack Brewer, who once said that President Donald Trump was the first black president. So that kind of gives you some context into Jeff Brewer said that fatherlessness was the civil rights issue of our time. Avita agreed by saying, Jack is so right. Fathers have to come back to the central part of the family and not just black fathers, but fathers across America and around the world. And she went on to say some other things. But I just found that very interesting, you know, in in a number of ways, I guess. Donald Trump was definitely not the first black president. That's that's one little disclaimer for you listeners in case in case you're unaware of that. I, I, I've I've had conversations, Devin, about this fatherlessness issue and how that's a, a real big thing. You know, I, I had a three hour conversation over the holidays that we've talked about when that was one of the things out of the conversation. But it's definitely not the civil rights issue of our time. And I definitely think that um blaming um the, the whole issue of fatherlessness on just the fathers or um or the community, it, it's you can't do uh, one without the other. It's you know, it's 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 a holistic picture of how to bring fathers back to the table, not to blame them or say that they've got to come back because there's a lot of reasons why um, they're not there. So, um, like I said, the only reason why Avita is relevant is just because it's her uncle's, you know, 
Hunkle's Day, so we we'll probably never talk about it again. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, no, no. I mean, I, I don't agree with with any of that. Like you say, it's not just on the fathers. It's not just on the community. That is a very complicated problem. Um, when you talk about fatherlessness in our community in particular, and just one note, I think there is like a CDC report that says that black fathers are actually the most involved with their children. So while she's going from a negative perspective, we'll put a little good news out there. Black fathers are actually doing some great things. The ones who are involved with their children. Um, and so just putting another spin on that. But <laughs> we'll go to our next story here. And in the epi- this segment here with some more good news, which is that. Uh, the nation's highest civilian award will be bestowed upon Mr. Willie O'Ree, who is the first black man to play in the National Hockey League. So the, the Congressional Gold Medal is awarded via an act voted in Congress. And the measure honoring o- O'Ree was introduced by Democratic Michigan Senator Debbie Stabenow and Republican South Carolina Senator Tim Scott in an effort in bipartisanship. Well, they, there's your bipartisanship. It's not coming from voting rights, but you will get... This um, it is it was unanimously passed by the Senate in July and it unanimously passed in the, the House of Representatives this week. So congratulations to Mr. Willie O'Ree. He was the first black NHL player and he's going to receive a congressional gold medal. So a little show of bipartisanship. Shout out to the to Debbie Stabenow and Tim Scott for getting that done. So we're going to take a, a, a second break here. And when we come back, we're going to get into our quick kiss. This is where the show gets really funny. We put on our comedic hats, and so we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast, hosted by Adrian Guess and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod and give a few dollars. After all, the Black Agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our quick hits here. As Devin said, uh, putting on our comedic hats. Um, if you don't have one, maybe you've got a, a weed hat, which is going to go perfect uh, for my next story or my first story, rather. A Louisiana U.S. Senate candidate is advocating for the legalization of marijuana in a very brazen way. In a campaign ad, Gary Chambers, a 36-year-old Democrat and progressive community advocate from Baton Rouge, is seen smoking a blunt in a leather chair in the middle of a field while stats about marijuana incarceration rates impacting black Americas are playing around him. On Tuesday, Chambers took to Twitter to promote his new ad by tweeting, I hope this ad works to not only destigmatize the use of marijuana, but also force a new conversation that creates the pathway to legalize this beneficial drug and forgive those who have been arrested due to outdated ideology. That's what he wrote. Chambers is hoping to unseat Republican Senator John Kennedy in November's midterm election. I think it's a... um, underdog kind of race for Chambers. So I think this was kind of like uh, like one of those last-ditch efforts before we even get to the midterms just to kind of get some yeah. some polling and some momentum going. Um, but, you know, hats off to him for trying. I mean, I didn't even know that marijuana was legal in uh, Louisiana. So I, I, when I saw this, I thought he was going to get in trouble just because of that. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know, but I I like the idea of trying to destigmatize marijuana. It's like big whoop. Like it's people smoke weed. It's a thing. People do it. Get over it. Like it's not going to kill you or anything like that. So hopefully it might be an uphill climb for him, but he definitely made a splash, you know, with his campaign video. Uh, So we're going to move on to our another story, another viral moment that happened on social media over the past few days. You probably have seen it, but if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to tell you to go watch it, but we'll at least give you the text version of it, which is uh, Pastor Mike Todd is apologizing for rubbing spit on a churchgoer's face. And yes, you heard that right. He rubbed spit on somebody's face. Uh, Religious services Sunday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, went viral after the pastor, Mr. Todd, was recorded spitting into his hand and rubbing it on the face of a parishioner. And in this clip, 
Todd, the pastor at Transformation Church, cupped his hand and wiped large globs of saliva and phlegm on the face of a man who stood there and took it. He did not move. He didn't make any faces. He stood there and let the pastor wipe his spit all over his face. After this went viral um, on Monday, Todd apologized for his actions. And he said, quote, that was a distraction to what I was really trying to do. I was really trying to make the word come alive and and for people to see the story. But yesterday it got too live and I own that. So that was an um an apology Adrian, but I'm 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 trying to understand how do you make the word come alive and help people see the story by spitting in somebody's hand, spitting in your hand and then rubbing it on somebody's face. Like what part of the word is that? Like help me out here. I'm just not seeing it. I, I, if I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a little rusty in in my uh, theology, but I, I do feel like there is a story in the Bible of Jesus. Okay. I don't. I can't remember if he spit on like in his hand and rubbed it, but I feel like I do remember a story in the Bible where I think it was Jesus, or maybe it was either his apostle Paul. Who I think they I thought they maybe spit in like the mud and like made a clay and then like put it on their and told them to put it on their face. But yeah, there there there's a story in the Bible that so he, he oh, so he, he was trying oh, okay. to bring it to life in the in the literal sense because um, yeah, I'm glad you know <laughs> it was one of the most disgusting things I think I've I've watched. Hey. I, you you don't have to worry about me attending Transformation Church. Just know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 a uh, it's definitely something that you know you, you don't see modern day preachers doing this. You know, this is something they did back in the day. So, uh, Pastor Todd might need to do a little more than apologize. It's it's you know COVID is spreading, so he could have been spreading COVID or something. You know. Um, <laughs> but to take us to another story, this is in Australia where an Australian woman was shocked to open a package of broccoli and she discovered a live scorpion lurking inside. Chloe Mitchell said her father-in-law bought the broccoli from Aldi store and she made the, pri- the surprising discovery as she was putting some of the cauliflower in the steamer. She turned around to get the last few pieces and she saw the scorpion crawling around on the cutting board. Of course, um, you know, she needed some help. I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have dealt with the scorpion by myself either. She called her husband in. She said that the eight legged creature got really aggressive when they tried to capture it. An Aldi representative told Seven News that the discovery was an uncommon occurrence and that they strongly encourage customers to bring issues to their attention so that they can directly review them. Um, I would hope that this is not something that happens often, but I'm reminded that it is Australia, so it probably does happen you know, more regularly than not because uh, Australia is full of things that can kill you. So... Um, it's. I definitely don't. You know. Uh, you know. Don't want to ever discover something like this. I mean, I would. You know, I can do a worm or something like that, but not a scorpion. No, you don't want a, a, a side of steamed Scorpio. I mean, I mean if I'm a fear factor, maybe. But <laughs> is Joe Rogan? <laughs> is Joe Rogan it. being delivered to? Or I guess not Joe Rogan. It's um, um, who's 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 hosting um um Ludacris? Isn't he hosting it now? Oh, maybe I haven't watched that. I haven't watched it. It's been forever. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, he was doing it at some point, but yeah. I'm sure they gave it to somebody else because it was very boring. Oh man, yeah. That's. I mean, that's something you would see on there. Um, but yeah, she should have just kept cooking it. <laughs> but we'll move on to another story here. We're going to go across the pond to England, and so a dog was saved last week when someone. Thought outside the casing, as they say, uh, Millie, who is a three-year-old Jack Russell Whippet mix, disappeared after slipping out of her leash in Hampshire, England, on January 13th. And this is according to a Facebook post by Den Me Drone Search and Rescue, which is a nonprofit pet rescue group. And so the group embarked on a four-day rescue attempt, but little Millie kept disappearing. And the situation got 
uh, became severe. It got pretty serious when the pup was spotted on a mud flat with a rapidly rising tide um, on the south coast. It looks like on the UK south coast. And so if the dog wasn't rescued quickly, there was actually a risk of the dog drowning. So they actually teamed up with some drone pilots um, and they came up with a creative solution, which was to attach some sausage to the drone in order to lure the dog to safety. And thankfully, Millie did take the bait and she was coaxed into a safer spot where she could be safely rescued. And so there you go. You know, man and machine and technology coming together to save, uh, you know, Miss Millie here. And it, all it took was some sausage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had two Great Danes before and um, dogs react to food. I mean, it's sometimes they may have to yeah. be sausage. I mean, it can you can fake them out by, you know, just waving something and, you know, putting your hand behind your back. And, and, and like I mean, yeah, they're all, <laughs> they, they don't know the difference, but, you know. It's good to have something for him. I miss my dog for sure. So we'll move to another topic away from dogs to reporters being um, being hit by cars. Um, so really interesting story. Yeah, I know. I saw this and I thought of us and I was like, I'm glad that, you know, we're in our, our, our houses because if we get hit by a car, then something's up real bad. Um, but this is out of West Virginia. Um, maybe this reporter needs to talk to um, Joe Manchin and see if she can get some support. <laughs> but a, a little political joke for you, uh, for you listeners out there. Shots fired. All right. I know. Hey, they say call on them for, for all kinds of stuff. So maybe this is one of them. Um, but anyway, a TV news reporter was struck by a car during a live broadcast and quickly got up to finish her report. Her name is Tori Yorgi. A reporter for LSAZ TV was delivering her live report. And she was delivering at a scene where a main uh, main water break in Dunbar was happening. And like I said, she was struck in the back. She said, oh, my God, I've just been struck by a car, but I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> it was just, just it was okay. Uh, the driver of the car could be heard stopping to check in on Tori. She also said, you know, that this is live TV for you. It's all good. I actually got hit by a car in college, too, just like that. But I'm good. I'm glad. You know, she's all good. The driver apologized as Tori readjusted her camera and lights. Uh, Tori ended up saying, you know, this is my last week on the job, and I would think that this would happen. So, you know, Tori is a very optimistic person, Devin. I don't think that I've met anyone who is, you know, almost been expecting to get hit by a car, you know, during the last week on a job. I mean, that's some some optimism for you and just bounce up and be okay. Yeah, I mean, she took it in stride. I've never I wouldn't say she was giddy, but she definitely she got hit. She got back up. You know, I, I saw the video and it was, you know, you could see the car coming behind her and it clipped her on the end and just kind of took her down. And then the camera fell. It, it did. You know, I'm not going to say it didn't look bad. The car wasn't going super fast, but she did get hit. Um, but luckily she was OK. And I, it sucks for her. It was her last week on the job. Hopefully, you know. I don't know if she's going to a different station. I was going to say maybe she won't be a reporter. She won't have to worry about that. Yeah, she's going to a different uh, station. She's going to be reporting somewhere oh, okay. else. So oh, she well. might. Hopefully, this is on to bigger, better last. things, which in her case could be you know bigger cars. So no more live <laughs> shots by herself anyway. <laughs> but we'll move on from that. We'll go. Our last story here is going to be uh, coming out of Missouri. And so there are probably some people running around trying to find um, a 1978 Dodge 3700 GT. They're not going to find it. Um, So the Missouri State Highway Patrol alert sent cell phones blaring statewide after authorities in Gotham City, Missouri, were searching for a purple and green 1978 Dodge uh, 3700 GT. But there's one problem, a couple of problems with this story. Number one, there is no Gotham City, Missouri. And the car referenced was the one used by the Joker in the 1989 Batman movie. So soon after the Tuesday evening alert, patrol sent another alert saying to disregard it. And in a brief news release, patrol said 
a routine test of Missouri's blue alert system was inadvertently transmitted statewide. And so the system is meant to let the public know when an officer is killed or seriously injured in the line of duty. So this was a false alarm. But I'm just wondering if there were some people (laughs) walking around or running around trying to find this 1978 purple and green dodge (laughs) that only existed in the movies. (laughs) So kind of funny. Glad it was just a, you know, false alarm. It wasn't actually a blue alert about an officer being, you know, killed or seriously injured. So uh, kind of funny, you know. And if you do find Gotham City, Missouri, let us know. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, I'm sure some some people, all of that just kind of went over their head, and others were just like, okay, that would have that would have been like something to like, you know, be you know, very happy to see or whatever. But like you said, we are glad that you know that that it was you know not 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 true or not not what not what we thought at least. So we're happy yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> no Absolutely. cops were injured in the making of this video. <laughs> there you go. There's your disclaimer. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and take our last break. And when we come back, we're going to wrap the show up and let you know what's coming up. Uh, so stick with us and we'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we're going to give you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast. And so first up, uh, what you have to look forward to is coming up on Tuesday, January 25th, we're going to be discussing virtual learning and whether it's actually good for our students. And so that's a big topic right now with the Omicron variant kind of ravaging and rampaging through the country. There are a lot of schools that are going virtual. They did not come back after Christmas break to, to in-person learning. And so we're just going to dig into whether virtual learning is helping or hurting our students right now. And so our guest for this episode is going to be Florida Education Association President, Mr. Andrew Spar. He's going to talk with us about what, you know, what virtual learning is all about, if it's good, if it's bad, and what are the results? What are we seeing right now? And could this be, you know, pushing students and making them behind when it comes to progressing through high school and middle school and getting on um, into life? And so we're going to tune. That's going to be a very good conversation. So make sure you tune in for that on Tuesday, January 25th, talking about virtual learning. And so after that episode on the 25th, we're going to be right back here with you next Saturday, January 29th, to give you some more news, some quick hits and some funny news. And so make sure you tune in for that to get all your news in a nice, neat package here on the Black Agenda. So again, weekly roundup number two coming to you on January 29th. And that is going to be next Saturday. So other than that, the last thing we have to talk to you about is, of course, you can't help us out. And so Adrian's going to let you know what you have to look forward to. You can't help us yet, but there are some big things coming. <laughs> yeah, I like how you said that. Um, <clears throat> Devin's going to talk about some ways in a second that you can help us with, you know, the podcast and stuff as far as getting the, getting the word out. But, you know, as I always talk about with donating and stuff like that, that's really about, you know, helping to progress our mission. Um, you know, we hired 11 interns um, this season and, you know, we can't do that without um, without you. And I don't mean that financially because we're not paying them, but um, because you have really bought into what we do on the Black Agenda, it lets us know that we have growth potential and that we can bring people on our team to really expand what we're trying to do. So we appreciate you for that. But talking about donating, um, one of the things that we're going to do this year differently is, you know, we're going to patron on, which is that, you know, we used to have at the P-A-T-R-E-O-N. We kind of had to spell it out for you. Um, we're going to go back to them because one thing that they have that's really interesting is they have merchandise so that way when you give to us you can get merchandise i think you get it like every three months or something like that but i'm gonna fill you in on that once we get it launched 
We're waiting until our website is redone. We just had a meeting on that. So that's going to be really awesome. Be on the lookout for that too. Not to mention, we're going to be getting some color added into our logo. So we want to do that. So that way when we've Put it on our merchandise. It'll look nice, look pretty. You'll want to wear it on a T-shirt, put it on your mug, whatever the case might be. Um, so like I said, just save your nickels and dimes, pennies, you know, cash app, you know, put a little balance beside or something for us, whatever you want to do. Whenever we get ready to launch it, going to have a big social media campaign and you're going to be in the loop. So like I said, just be on the lookout for it. Also, our charity of the month, like I said, last, um, well, rather, like I said, during our MLK special, which if you haven't, you know, listened to that, we had Mark Morial from the National Urban League, big episode, go listen to it. But like I said, on that episode, we don't do uh, charity of the month halfway in the month. We'd rather make sure we have the whole month to really promote that charity. But we've been talking a lot about voting rights uh, we've been talking a lot about lobbying your Congress. So, you know, there's a lot of different causes, a lot of different organizations that are doing both of those things. Um, you can go support them in the meantime while you're waiting on February's Charity of the Month. But other than that, Devin, that kind of sums up our philanthropy and altruism that we have here on the Black Agenda. Like I said, big things are coming. <laughs> Not to hype it up too much, but... Listeners, you have a lot of great things to look forward to, both here on the podcast, but also just, you know, with the website and the show as a whole. So make sure you stick with us. This is going to be a great season. This has been a great, you know, introduction into our weekly roundup. And so make sure you tune in again. Make sure you tune in January 25th, virtual learning, January 29th, weekly roundup. Last thing I'll say before we go, make sure you find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. So make sure you go there and follow us and share some of the great content that you're seeing. And so um, for me and Adrian, we appreciate you staying with us. And we're going to catch you next to next Saturday um, on January 29th and next Tuesday on January 25th. So until then, we'll catch you next time. Yeah.